Okay, so let's and begin. <laughs> what are we doing? How do we start these anymore? I don't know. No, this is this is how we start them. We just go. Not yeah. the intro. No. Y- yes, this is the intro. That's kind of what we've been doing. We're winging it. Episode twenty nine. Brought it's, to it's you. 30. Thirty though. It's thirty. Oh, it's, oh, it is thirty. <laughs> okay. Brought to you by Alpha Counseling. Alpha is the largest, most respected provider for justice-involved clients in need of sexual offense-specific treatment services. Alpha clinicians are trained in cognitive behavioral interventions for sexual offense, which is, by the way, an evidence-based practice from the lovely University of Cincinnati Corrections Institute, which I'll be going to next month. It is lovely. It is. Again? Yeah, I got to go back there for CBI SA this time. I feel sorry for the sap that has to train me, though. (laughs) They're going to have four days of pure, unadulterated hell. But when you choose Alpha, you'll get to have the satisfaction knowing that you're, our clinical professionals have over 60 years of combined experience in providing clinical treatment in both inpatient and outpatient settings. Probably way more than that now. What if they're inpatient? They're like they just really want to get started right now. They're, so impatient. they're inpatient, inpatient <laughs> treatment providers. That's funny. <laughs> Alpha counts. Uh, this this podcast, this episode of the podcast is all pr- also brought to you by Prime Polygraph Services. For all of your polygraph needs, <laughs> That's, all of them, and you'll find those. How many? How many needs <laughs> let's, would, let's make would sure there we be? Know what those are. <laughs> yeah. I guess, like if you're if you're lying, right? Yeah, it's never enough. Then you need it, and you need it, yeah. or no, no, no. Like if you're if you need <laughs> to verify the truth, how's that? There That's you go. Like that. yeah, we're not. It's not a lie detector. It's yeah. a verification that you're telling the truth. There it is. That sounds better. Yeah. Prime, Poly- Pi- Prime Polygraph Services has yet to develop a website, so there's that. But you can it's reach too busy working. Yeah, man. but you can reach them at eight zero one eight one zero zero four nine zero. Is in the yellow pages again for all <laughs> of your polygraph needs. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess you could Gmail them at primepolygraph at gmail dot com at aol dot org at aol dot gov. Do have a normal email for my real email address? <laughs> Musclecritter <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> All right, let's get this thing started. All right, now we're on. We're All on right, Mr. Edward Cook. Welcome back, man. Howdy. Dude. Good to be here again. So how long is it? Make sure everybody knows how long it is when you're going to be off the market so all the ladies know to, like, swarm you. T minus what? Does, wait, just swarm me before or after? Both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of those chicks like the married ones, man. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Do you know from experience? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Me and Jeff are just June. dead quiet. Well, yeah. June. <laughs> You're on your own. Yeah, you too. Carry <laughs> on. <laughs> Getting married in June. June. We won't say where because we don't want to make a public invite. Secret. It's in yeah. the group room. It's in the, <laughs> it's in the group room at Alpha. <laughs> you there? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're getting married right next to the stain in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) I felt left out. Everybody else is married. Yeah. Yeah. Well, come aboard. Is that was that what's called the dark side now? (laughs) The dark side. Yeah, the dark side of life. Yeah, yeah. It's just what happens. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, you excited about that? Yeah, well, planning it hasn't been easy. You know, it's not really. How was your planning for everything? That you I don't went know. Through? I paid some loser to plan for me. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Why didn't someone tell me that like six months ago? 
I, pr- I probably the, did or, tell you. Or to do having that. the money to do that, I guess, would be fancy too. I guess Alpha could have just sponsored my wedding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have really paid off. <laughs> Sponsor it. <laughs> oh yeah, that would have been. Why didn't Prime? Prime Polygraph sponsor it. That's a good idea. Yeah. Maybe make it still happen. But it's, it's exciting, man. Uh, going through everything, getting married. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You can start having kids. I guess you could start doing that anytime. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. You probably have. I have plenty you know, of people get yeah. started early. None that know where I'm at. Yeah. No, and if you and if no, they were. No confirmations. You could be like, am I your father? <laughs> <laughs> Polygraph question. <laughs> Maury Povich. <laughs> nope. You are not the father. <laughs> nope. Officially, don't anyone else read this but me. Dude, do you think you will interrogate your kids? Polygraph. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. If they're... If they're Threatening people they date when they grow up, things like that. Absolutely. Dude, how, like, oh my how, god! Like, meet, was it meet how the good fuckers, do you think right? those? Yeah. yeah. Fucker, how good do you think those polygraphs were on the Maury Povich show where they're doing the paternity tests? I don't even think um, they existed. They probably didn't even really they do just, them. They, they just put a letter there. out and said, <laughs> "What would Dude, be more interesting?" They, they, those they paternity tests. Magic eight ball. Those paternity tests were my favorite, though. Well, I thought, yeah, did they do lie detector or just the DNA? Yeah, no, they, they, they were doing lie detector. Yeah, DNA would make more sense on Maury. I think Mari had, and the lie detector says this and that. The one that would probably be good would be, I think, Dr. Phil would probably actually have decent <laughs> polygraph Phil. exams on there, like an actual yeah. professional versus, I don't know about Mari. Probably yeah. not. It might just be, what's going to be more dramatic? My oh, favorite. yeah. Dude, my favorite sure. is on those, on those uh, like, because they have like a lead up. They have like a week of, of DNA paternity tests. And there's one sorry sap up there with like 10 dudes. <laughs> and you go through all of them, you know, and all those dudes are so stoked. You know, they're doing like backflips when they find out. And they've never done a backflip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. And then, and then like the, but it comes down to the last dude and you can just see the dread in that dude's face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, God. you know, and he's like fearing it and she's and the girl you know now she's light lighting she's like lighting up oh, i told i told him i told him it was him i told him. i don't know why they talk like that but anyway she, but it is every she, time yeah, yeah. yeah. she's like, i done told him it was him i knew i knew it i knew it was him it, i told him. and then he says you are not the father yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she gets pulls out a gun and blows his brains out <laughs> and then and then she she like knows I missed right that then. episode yeah then the dread goes on then it the, was basically oh, it's a, every episode yeah it's yeah. a good one and then the dread goes on he her. shot himself no. on stage no. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying he's so excited you could imagine that happening yeah. and then like <laughs> i told you yeah yeah he punches her but then but then you see the dread go into her face and then she's all oh now i know who it is it was the janitor yeah. oh the janitor <laughs> him again <laughs> yeah that's those are always fun I, I just love seeing people's hearts break they <laughs> yeah. see it in if you're gonna face. go on that kind of show though you're, yeah, ask, you're asking for it you do deserve yeah. it yeah. you do deserve it that's for sure so would you ever take a gig like that no i would really not. i don't want to deal with the drama no, well, everybody's yeah. got a price. Would though. you guys? Well, you know, like yeah. Maybe, if he said a million dollars oh, yeah. a polygraph, well, just to run a polygraph, just a oh, polygraph. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fine, two million. <laughs> no, <laughs> like no. barter no. up the worst negotiator ever. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. No, Dude, for that kind of money, you should, three you would have to for sure do <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. three. Yeah. No, for sure. Well, no, because that's uh that. Yeah, I wonder. Like that would be intimidating if your dad. Was a polygrapher? Oh my god, dude! <laughs> and then, like, that. if you—I mean, just imagine. So it's Get out of it, here, right? So you have a daughter who's sixteen, and and then homeboy comes over to take her out on a date, 
And then you're like cool with it. You're like, all right, here you go. You know, and you do the fatherly thing, give the dude 50 bucks, 100 bucks, say, show my daughter a good time, you know? And then he comes back, right? I, that that happened one time when I took a girl out on a date. It was like to a dance, and he gave me. I think he gave, he gave you me, money. Yeah, he gave me like sixty bucks. Oh, like nice. sucker, <laughs> spend that on his daughter. <laughs> Come on, son. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I uh, no, I, I bought her really something nice, and probably bought her a sprite or McDonald's. something. Yeah, something like that. It's pretty nice. But anyway, like she gets back, and then like a week later. You know, he walks in and it's like a meet the parents type situation. Well, come on in here, son. Oh, you know, God. dude, can you imagine that? And then he tries to run out and then I close the door behind him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where are you going? Wait, this random other guy, just my friend standing behind the yeah. door. So you're hiding behind the door. Yeah. Yeah. The 16 year old goes to walk out. Mm-hmm. This giant guy shuts the door and stares at it's him. It's like a mixture of it's down. like a mixture of bad boys, too. When when <laughs> Martin Lawrence and Will Smith confront that poor little sucker, oh yeah, that's yeah, right. that is so awesome. And then meet the parents where you hook them up to a polygraph. That'd be so great. And then and then you find out that he didn't do anything with your daughter. <laughs> that's like a, the one benefit of polygraph, right? Like other yeah. jobs, you can like be a mechanic. You can take care of all your own work. You don't have to depend on anybody else. I guess I can threaten my daughter's boyfriends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what you got. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not that's quite it. as useful in my day to day. Yeah, that's what I would do. Yeah, what you, are you doing, Justin? He's putting it in my mouth. Is this like he's like Jamie from the Joe Rogan show? Pull that up. Yeah. Make sure that's just like a fist between. So. Well, so you're like our only guest who's ever returned, huh? Yeah, sounds that, that way. True? That yeah, say? that's true. We haven't ever had anybody back because they all suck. Why not? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding, everybody. We appreciate anybody. Well, they're never like, coming back. Yeah, no one's no one's listening to this. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I remember we're the b- number one polygraph in all of Ogden. In all of this building. Number one polygraph or podcast? That too. We're the number one polygraph podcast in. We're the number one podcast. Number one podcast talking to a polygrapher yeah. right now. Yeah, we're the number yeah. in all of Ogden. Yeah, right now we're the number one <laughs> podcast. In all of Ogden, in this room, west of Harrison Boulevard. Yeah. It doesn't sound impressive, but there's yeah. actually 200,000 of them in Ogden. Really? 200,000 no. what? No, there's po- probably like negative four. Podcasts? I was just joking. Oh, you Damn, just made dude. that up. Yeah. <laughs> There's like there's eighty thousand people in Ogden, but there's two hundred thousand po- polygraph <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> everyone has eight. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds right. That's so funny. Numbers seem to line up. Uh, well, so the so part of the reason I guess we uh, brought Ed back on this was uh, last time we kind of went over like a general. Um, we went over a general idea of what the polygraph is, and and I think we tackled a lot of. Um, I mean, I know we went on to antipolygraph.org and talked about some of the nonsense associated with that. Uh, we had kind of a specific update with regards to the polygraph that we were involved in. Um, I'm not sure how much other people were um, aware of this. This was kind of a big case. So I don't know if we want to start there and kind of go through some of this stuff and then and then kind of get into uh, basically the use of the polygraph as far as it applies to the treatment that we do and then other uses of the polygraph that go beyond just like any types of sex offender treatment or anything like that's primarily what we use it for in forensic treatment um and going from that seemed like a good place yeah are you you Mm -hmm. talking about our interaction with that federal judge yeah 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 so uh, there's uh so this is i'll kind of there's a a story that was um so this is out of the uh the denver post and the um just to give appropriate credit here so this was the head the headline was colorado sex offenders lie detector court 
wind could have a big impact. Um, so this was uh, the 10th, 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals finding Tuesday, but this was all the way back in, I think, let's see, uh, 2016, May of 2016. So this was two years ago, and that's about that summer when we went in to speak with the federal judge. So we'll talk about that here in a minute. So the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, overruled a lower court's decision and agrees with Brian Von Barron, I hope I'm saying that right, that the lie detector examination would violate his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination because polygraphers are used, because polygraphs, rather, are used post-conviction on sex sex crime offenders across the nation, especially in Colorado, the appellate ruling could impact the practices implementation in Colorado and beyond observers say. So basically what was going on here was in 2005, this Von Baron guy, he was sentenced in Colorado's federal court to 121 months in prison and three years of supervised release for receiving and and distributing child pornography. But as part of his conditions for release, he was ordered to take a sexual history polygraph requiring him to answer four questions about whether he had committed illicit sex acts for which he was never charged. So before we kind of get into that, um, Ed, can you kind of elaborate on what a sexual history polygraph is and and um, maybe we can kind of talk about why we do those a little bit? Right, right. So sexual history polygraph. So towards or earlier in treatment, guys are going to go through their sexual history polygraph. And part of that is to help make sure that they're uh, – going over their sexual history accurately with their therapist. So basically their therapist should, they want to make aware of what kind of history they have of victimizing others, whether, um, a main, one main focus often is other hands on victims. So I think there was a issue over at Bonneville. Was it a few years ago that something came up and they were concerned about fifth amendment for this as well. So um, Bonneville being a halfway house here. Yeah, the Bonneville Community Correction Center is actually a long time ago. Oh, really? Um, and a uh, very similar issue, yes. And right. that, that made its way all the way to the Utah uh, Supreme Court. So, so so part of what uh, you're talking about, so there are concerns with the Fifth Amendment, right? If I'm going to go into a sexual history polygraph, if I know that if I'm actually honest with my therapist or the polygraph examiner, about my history like i let's say i had 10 other hands-on victims that i've never been charged for i know if i went into a polygraph like that if i know that if i'm actually honest i'm going to have other charges pressed against me no way i'm going to be honest and how does that benefit anybody right like how does that benefit therapy for preventing these so um i try to make clear i think most do now uh while you're going through there that if there's we don't need identifying information for previous victims hands-on victims um just mainly looking for what their history was, whether it was victimizing minors, whether it was internet crimes, whether it might have been one issue as an adult where they had an internet crime like you might see on what uh, Crime Watch or To Catch a Predator or, or something like that. So therapy would obviously look different, I imagine. I mean, you guys would be the experts, but for someone that had one internet crime as an adult versus someone that's had an entire lifetime of victimizing others, maybe minors of certain ages. So part of what we go through on... Um, and there's two different kinds of sexual history polygraph exams, but the main one that's used more often is looking at their other, other, other hands on victims. Have you forced sexual contact on anyone you haven't disclosed already? Uh, have you had sexual contact with any minors since you've been an adult again, that you have not already disclosed, um, some other issues like that. But again, the main issue is just making sure your therapist is aware of what your actual history is. So they know how to direct therapy is my understanding with that. 
be correct for you guys as well, what you want, really want to see for something like that on your side? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's accurate. I, that That's actually helpful for any, any clients that happen to be listening to this. If I, I try to send, so my clients that go to you, before I send them to you, I want to make sure that they feel comfortable that they've truly let me know everything in their sexual history. And I'll even just kind of encourage them say like, Hey, look, it's, it's not just the obvious stuff, but man, like even anything that's like slightly embarrassing, just sort of hanging in the back of your head somewhere, something weird that you did when you were 12. I don't know. Just, just tell me, get it off your chest and you're going to feel a lot better when you're sitting in front of Ed. So I kind of send that sales pitch to him. I think that's a a great example. Um, and I think Alpha, I think you guys do a great job of, of kind of getting your guys ready to know what to expect. And I think that's important. I think two things that I often see, or I might see more often. So if someone does fail a sexual history polygraph, I think two of the main reasons that I might see when they come back for the second one was one, uh, they may have been in their eyes uh, screwed over by the system, right? Maybe they had police officers lie to them to catch them in something or, or whatever might be going on. So they just think, Hey, Alpha's out to get me. They just want to get new charges. They want to throw me back in jail. So they feel like, yeah, if I'm open about these things, they're going to press new charges. I'm going back to jail. No way I'm going to be open yet. I think the second reason I see that someone might fail a sexual history test more often would be if there's, like you said, there's things they're not really comfortable about talking about yet. Maybe there's some really embarrassing things that may have happened in their past. And they have been with their therapist for what, maybe three months, two, three months at this time. And I'm a complete stranger they're coming into, so they might not be comfortable yet. So I've had guys come back for that second polygraph, and it ends up being one of those two things more often, I think, than not. Um, And and like you mentioned, prepping guys, if there's things uncomfortable, I can think of one situation. I bring this up to guys in my exams, too, where I had a guy, he ended up failing his initial sexual history polygraph. And like I said, Alpha's great. You guys work with these guys, try to communicate what was bothering you. You're not trying to threaten these guys to come in here, which I think is the right atmosphere to come in for a polygraph test. Um, so this guy failed the test, comes back the second time, and we're talking about what might have been bothering him. And there was a question asking if he'd forced sexual contact on anyone. And, and that's where he more specifically was showing a significant reaction. But when I was talking to him, he said, during the test, when you asked me about have I forced sexual contact on someone, I started worrying because when I was a minor, a girl accused me of rape. He's like, I know I didn't do it and sat and explained the whole situation, but he hadn't talked to me about that during that first exam during our interview. So he said, when I asked him the question on the test, he's sitting there worrying. He's like, well, this girl accused me of this when I was a minor. I know I didn't do it. It shouldn't be a big deal. He's answering no, right? Uh, So there's something he's sitting there worrying about that he hasn't talked about that's causing a reaction, right? It's not technically a lie detector. It's it's showing that reaction, right? And so I always try to clarify that if there's something that's not clear that you're worried about, let me know. So we don't have that same issue. And he, the second time we ran it, I asked, other than what you've talked about, have you ever forced sexual contact on someone? He passed just fine. So that's one of the few situations I can think of when, when our guy came that first time. He wasn't, it, I don't think he was really trying to lie, but there was definitely something related to the question bothering him that he hadn't talked to me about. So does that, I mean, and maybe you can clarify that a little bit and then we can kind of come back to how this plays into the, this this supreme or not the or this um uh, district circuit court decision i should mm-hmm. say um because so is it like you're saying it's not a lie detector right and i think that's a misrepresentation of what that is and i i mean i have to be a true believer going into that one of the things that 
I will I train therapists on on a routine basis is if you think your client is going to fail the polygraph do not send them into it um, what's the point I mean if you if you believe that your client is lying then just tell them you think that they're lying just tell them you think they're being dishonest and cite the reasons why now I've been I've done that and I've been wrong at times and I'll and I'll give them the reasons why hey I think you're being dishonest because what you're saying doesn't match up with the behaviors that have been reported to me by your PO or by other people or that I'm seeing from group therapists or whatever it is so that's where I might say that but I I, I think Using it as a way to catch somebody in a lie is a foolish way to use a polygraph. I think if we're using this as a method of, I'm using, especially the sexual history is even trickier because we're using that for treatment planning purposes. But when you're saying like that they're worried about it, what exactly is the polygraph? I mean, and I know you don't want to talk too much about Hmm. like specifics because then, you know, you don't want, I mean, I think it'd be incredibly difficult to train yourself to beat this or something like that. But when you're asking what is it that they're worried about, what is the polygraph detecting at that point? Right. So we're looking at what physiological data. So you're looking at your change in blood pressure, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm asking someone a question, is there a raise in their blood pressure and pulse, you know, sweat, you know, if I ask someone a question, do they have a change in their sweat, you know, more sweat coming out of their fingers when I'm asking a question. We also have a plethysmograph, not to be confused with a separate plethysmograph test that gets used for these guys sometimes. Yeah, the one that's on me right now. (laughs) (laughs) But And that's going to measure suppression um, of your uh, blood volume and pulse amplitude in your finger while we're testing. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's multiple things going on. That's a polygraph, right? Multiple graphs that we're using to measure these things. Um, And we're going to, and there's going to be multiple presentations on most test formats so you're not just saying, well, he happened to have one reaction when I asked him this question once. It, it's going consistently multiple times through multiple presentations. So there's something bothering this person relating to this, which is generally they're lying about something. Or on cases like I mentioned, there's something related to the question that's bothering him that they're not telling me about. And I can't read someone's mind, so I don't know what's bothering them. But after a test, I'll always ask, is anything bothering you? If we can clear something up, if I can spend an extra 20 minutes with someone, if afterwards there's something that we hadn't gone over, you know, obviously best case, we've talked about it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But if after test there's something else that happened to come up, and that can happen, you know, I'm sure I, c- I can imagine that happening to me. Then if I can spend extra time to clarify, reword something and spend a little more time to run something, I'm happy to spend more time with someone in that case so they don't have to reschedule to clarify something that might be, you know, not as serious. Or that they hadn't talked about that, you know, just they knew about right then even we could take care of. So if you ask that during an examination, like, hey, is there anything else that's bothering you? Is that a pretty good indication that they probably need to really? No. 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 I mean, if, I mean, if I ask it, they're like, mm. there's something going on. Is something. Yeah. So not in the, no. So I'll ask it to everybody. You know, I okay. want to clarify, hey, were all the questions that we asked you really clear? You know, was, was there anything bothering you during the test? Um, I, like I say, I've been doing it for a little while, but I can think of one situation like that even. So there's been one situation that came up. Where a guy, so his charge, I think the wording in his conviction, the charge talked about forced sexual contact or something. What actually happened wasn't, you know, our definition necessarily of forced, right? Forcing um, sexual contact on someone physically. They're telling you no uh, or, you know, they're trying to push you off or stop you or using threats, right? So his actual crime wasn't related to that, but the charge was. So we ran through a test and after the test, he brought up, hey, you know, during the test, when that came up, I was really worried about this because the charge said that. He's like, I, that's not what would actually happen, but I was really, I felt like I was really freaking out, right? 
and I haven't scored everything at this time. So same thing with that last guy, right? So he talked to me about it. I'm like, okay, that if that was bothering you, then let's talk about it. Let's clarify. Let's reword this and run it again. And that was the one situation I can think of where we ran the first one. I scored them both later. The first one I think was going to show a significant reaction, whereas the second one didn't. So again, I can't read someone's mind. If something's bothering you, let's clarify it and talk about it. I'll spend extra time with you if I can because... But again, related, right? Forced sexual contact. Well, they said I forced it. You know, let's let's talk about that. So there's nothing related to this that's that's going on. So yeah, you're not you're not reading minds. You're just reading the the way the physiological responses show up. Right. So can you can you talk about the different things they're hooked up to? Gauges, switches, levers, and buttons, and yeah, yeah. So there's the. <laughs> Electrodes, <laughs> electrocutions, <laughs> switch it. Oh, okay, like now you have to tell machine, the truth. The, the alarm, the switch machine. is on. Yeah. So, so there's gonna, there's two pneumotubes around their upper and lower chest that are monitoring upper body movements, and it's the same type of thing I tell them when they're in there. Um, and then they're sitting on motion sensors. It's going to monitor lower body movements, and those are all just basically to make sure that someone's not moving around during the test, right? So we have a good clear reading. Then there's the blood pressure cuff that's going to be on their arm to measure change in blood pressure and pulse throughout the test. Then there is the EDA plates or galvanic skin response, if you want to, how they used to call it by that instead of electrodermal activity. Oh, is that old school? Yeah, I think more often it's called EDA now oh, versus okay. GSR. But Ele- electric dermal. Electrodermal activity. Okay. Uh, but that's going to be on a couple of fingers, a couple little sensors that are going to monitor your sweat response, perspiration. And then... Uh, PLE plethysmograph is going to be on one of your fingers. So base, it's it's basically like in the hospital when you put the little oxygen sensor on your finger and they're measuring. So it's basically that type of device. It's going to be on a finger. It's going to measure suppression. So uh, blood volume and pulse amplitude in your finger while we're testing. So uh, basically the way they're looking at the research and things now is uh, to, to tell a lie is going to take more cognitive function, right? It's going to take more work to tell a lie than the truth. So when it gets scored out by me and the computer scoring system afterwards, it's just basically looking at how your body's reacting when you're answering these questions um, for everything as far as that goes. But any one reaction on those isn't isn't necessarily going to indicate deception. Perfect, yeah. Because, so, so this is something that, I was listening to a podcast um, about this and they were talking, it was briefly, it was about a murder trial and t- they talked about a the polygraph and they mentioned briefly that uh, the reason why they're not admissible in court, and I know this is incorrect, so we'll revisit this later, but the reason why they're not admissible in court is because they actually don't detect deception. They just can detect anxiety or the absence of anxiety, which I was like, nah, that's not accurate. Um, and th- this 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 podcast was not specific to or about polygraphs in any general sense, but I think people get that idea. And so uh, is it wrong to say that that a lie... Um, those physiological responses have a pattern to them that's consistent with deception versus like, I just take a deep breath during this question because I had, I, I yawned and I'm screwed. Like right. obviously you would see a variation. Right. You know, and like you say, if you yawn or if there's a movement or if someone coughs, you know, if I ask someone, did you shoot John? You know, and if someone coughs right then they take, you know, maybe they yawn or maybe they move around or something like that. And there's mm-hmm. some reaction going on. Mm-hmm. There's those artifacts. So if there's artifacts that could have any type of impact on those reactions, I just can't score that. Right. Mm-hmm. So and that goes back to my motion sensors. Right. Part of the reason those are there is to make sure someone's sitting still so that doesn't happen, you know, good or bad. Right. If someone 
is getting asked a serious question. Did you shoot this person? And they're moving around. There's a reaction. I don't want that movement and a reaction caused that might be from that movement to score negatively against that someone. That would disqualify. Like that. So I just can't score that portion, right? Mm-hmm. So in some situations, you can ask more questions. So you have more data to score. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you have a little less to score when you look at it after if it's not clear right away. So you have a more ch- a higher chance of getting you know, an inconclusive or no opinion. Because I'm not going to score out something and say it's a pass or fail if it doesn't clearly score out that way you know so obviously no one wants to get that no opinion or inconclusive but if that's where it is that's what i have to give and there's statistically those are just going to happen sometimes but but those artifacts you you do some due diligence prior to asking that question that that important question for why they've submitted themselves to the polygraph in the first place to have an idea of how this particular person responds to or, or, or demonstrates physiological artifacts when they are deceptive, when they are lying. You have an idea of that prior to asking that question. Right. I mean, in general, I'm mean, looking at those reactions, right? And are all the reactions different? So, I mean, so like I mean, the if, way if that someone, I lie, is it going to look different the way compared to Jeff lies? So I think the main thing, and there's going to be some, there'll be some physiological, yeah. Some people have more significant, like for me, for example, I'm a terrible liar. So like back in school, if, if I was yeah, on these is. things... <laughs> doing something as simple as just kind of you know practicing things like just write a number down put it under your sit on it and let's see if we can guess who you know what number you wrote or what state you were born in and mine looking at mine even if i know what's going on and i'm i'm trying to hide it if i can i mean mine's just ridiculous mine's horrible Mm -hmm. it's just a huge reaction when i when i'm lying on those things whether i know what's going on or not um some people overall the reactions might not be as severe like it might not be as high as mine but um do so i guess it's different from person to person in that way some things are much more obvious than others but it's still the same type of thing though right do some people react more to like one particular sensor like you know if the, if mace and i are comparing the differences in how we lie and you know what would potentially mace's uh ad whatever it is uh uh, spike higher than if like and maybe mine would react more with uh, me fidgeting and moving around a lot yeah it it might do things like that i mean obviously you don't want to fidget but yeah some people for instance if someone has like a huge like a big yawn in the middle of a test for some people cardio everything might raise with something like that possibly Mm -hmm. whereas other people you see the exact same thing they'd have a huge yawn or something before or, or during a test and you don't see really any huh. change in them on the and on this type of thing. So some people you see a little bit more than others are more reactive. Some people might their cardio might be, you know, moving around in a much more severe than others as well. So yeah, there's definitely some differences between everybody on that. Okay. Whether it's a little more obvious on some than others. What so, if they're like super out of shape and just have like really bad cardio <laughs> in general? Yeah. You know, then they're lying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're all, what's wrong with you? <laughs> we need to go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so okay, so hopefully that, I mean, that's kind of a short crash course in this, but I, I guess the message behind that is, and I, I mean, I, I think getting to the specific artifacts might not be a great idea of talking about those, but I, I would just say there's there's more than just like oh this guy's anxious it would be weird if you're going into a polygraph and you weren't anxious i would, yeah. I would have to right. imagine those things well, going in you there. took a polygraph before didn't you yeah super anxious right and did you pass yeah right. absolutely i yeah. think that's the most probably one of the most common questions i get is being anxious going to affect my polygraph and i think it'd be more uncommon to ever see someone that came that wasn't at least a little bit anxious or nervous everyone coming in 
and I think they all worry about it. So they must not think everyone is, but everyone coming in is nervous, anxious. Mm-hmm. They're they're really worried. What's going to happen? Don't know. And we don't just rush into it. So we well, have- and that's that's where, as I was listening to this podcast, uh, the gal who was hosting this podcast had made that point. She had said everybody's anxious going into that. Well, like, well, yeah, but to me, what I've what I've discovered along the way is that I think that really the quality of the question matters more than anything. So the the question that's being asked, the quality of the question that's being asked, what's it's being asked about, those are the things that matter more than anything because I think, you know, if I'm being asked one question, real simple, Mm -hmm. if I'm being asked 80 questions, okay, that's different. I mean, there's so many things and so many variations. And And two, I think noticing what they're asking questions about I mean, whether or not I did this particular thing versus that particular right. thing, and you're asking me only about 100%. that, that's really right. that seems percentile wise that uh, and that's going to be really accurate. And that's exactly um, something they point out, especially back in school, going through. So, a perfect example of that is if we're going into crimes, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say uh, there's a thousand dollars missing from a business, and they want to run some polygraphs to find out who stole that money, right? So they think $1,000 missing. You ask the person, did you take that $1,000? And let's say I know, well, I only took like $750. This other guy <laughs> took 250 So if I'm asking a really clear question, did you take that $1,000 from that business? I know I didn't take that $1,000. Mm-hmm. So for some people, it might be like, nope, I didn't. And I'm, and I'm not lying, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't take that $1,000. So you get taught that that's not a good question. A better question is, did you take any of that money? You know, and now you don't have that exact amount. It's it's more clear on just what you're asking. It's including that. So you have to be careful. And, and like you said, being really clear on your questions. Mm-hmm. So there's different test formats. You know, I'll start off by saying so some have different types of questions and that might not be as specific as other formats. But one of the ones I use more often, I want my main issue questions to be as very specific and behavioral based as possible for the particular format that I use. And again, so it might be different from examiner to examiner, depending on the format, not to say one's better than the other necessarily, but mine's the best. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm I'm kidding. Humbly stated, but no, you're not. So for instance, for this one, I'm not going to ask questions on the majority of, if I'm using this format, which I use other ones as well. But for this format, I'm not going to ask really broad general questions. So I have a lot of POs, or therapists sometimes come and say, I want to know if they have broken any other laws or during their probation. It's like, okay, did you break any new law during your probation? So what could that include? Speeding. Is, is spitting on yeah. the sidewalk? Is it spitting? Is it something more serious? Is it you know murder. using drug? Is it murder? <laughs> so to ask a question like that, did you break any laws during probation? Of course they broke something, right? Mm-hmm. You can't. That's just so broad. Everybody, yeah. Particularly like if they're they're under like probation or parole, right? And if you're defining a breaking of a law as a violation of right, your probation right. or parole, so that can be tough. So again, that's to this specific type of polygraph. There's similar ones that might have some general questions, but for this format that I use more often, I want something specific. So for a post conviction sex offender test, if I'm doing uh, let's say a maintenance exam for probation, instead of saying have you committed a new crime, do you have a new victim? I want to be more specific. If a therapist or PO wants new victims, okay, what was this crime of conviction? Did he force sexual contact? Was it sexual contact with a minor? So we might ask something like, uh, you know, during probation, if you had unauthorized contact with minors, because that's, I think, a good place to start to be concerned with some of that kind of stuff. Or if they really need to know if it's, you know, they have concerns, did you force sexual contact on someone during probation? So 
being more specific is much more clear for the person taking the test. And, and I feel for, for the majority of these tests, it's going to be better. So the question formulation would be more like it, it, it describes the examinee's behavior. Um, it's, it's also, I think not feelings, right? Right, right. Time delimited. In other words, there's a date and a time frame, right. and simple. Yes, no direct and easily understood. So you don't, presuppose guilt or deception in the questions you avoid legal terms or treatment jargon that they may not understand make sure they understand so it's to the the client right some clients might understand some of that really well um so you might use some of their terminology if they understand something that's more clear that way yeah but if they don't understand some of those things then make the the verbiage correct or more relevant to that person okay so i i mean i guess i just want listeners to understand the legitimacy of this is is to not discount the use of this because this is an important part of what we do specifically with regards to the sexual history polygraph and um to the von baron case in this in the united states von baron is the is the it's the von baron v-o-n space capital b-e-h-r-e-n is the name of it if anybody wants to look it up and this is the 10th circuit court and and so basically so, so again, he was sentenced to like ten years in prison, three years of supervised release. Now, near the near his release in 2014, his convi- his conditions uh, were changed to include successful completion of an approved sex offender treatment program that was in Colorado, and so this was by the Colorado Sex Offender Management Board um, that they require programs, including the one that he was attending, which was called Redirecting Sexual Aggression (RSA). Uh, to subject the, the the clients to a sexual hi- history polygraph, so so the RSA required the clients to sign a contract allowing the program to report any illegal activity to the authorities. Now this is where things became kind of tricky because his refusal to comply with all of RSA's conditions would result in dismissal from the treatment program and likely revoke his supervised release condition. So the Court of Appeals said, well, hold on, that's that's not necessarily fair. So they um, they they said that he was he was scheduled to do this, but um, they said at least three of the questions that were on this, the Court of Appeals looked at this, said at least three of the questions would require him to admit having committed a felony. So if he answered yes then the examiner could ask how many times and through a yes uh, answer could not sustain a conviction on its own. It, it could help narrow the investigation or whatever. And they found that this was that this level of self-incrimination was constitutionally impermissible. So these incrimi- so even though we're allowed to ask incriminating questions during this, we can't do it in a way that, that's going to, because it's part of the rehabilitative process, and I'll talk about that here in a minute, the government cannot compel somebody to answer those questions because it would be a violation of their Fifth Amendment right. So what they found was that they called this a, a Hobson's choice because it's just a legal term where he was required to sign an agreement that authorizes treatment provider to disclose his answers to authorities. He was left to decide between two impossible choices. He refused to an- If he refused to answer, he'd be kicked out of the program and in violation of a supervised release, which could, which could send him back to prison. But if he took the polygraph, his answers could be used against him. And so they determined that the polygraph exam could not be mandated as a result of that. So we got commissioned, well, I guess asked by 
the United States Probation Office, based on our polygraph, because they had read it before, like our preparation material for the sexual history polygraph, to go in and, and talk with it's a chief uh, ju- judge David Nuffer or Nuffer, N U F F E R, and we went into his chambers and, and described to him the way that we use it. And Jeff, I don't know if you want to kind of talk a little bit about what our mentality was when we kind of formulated that in terms of putting that together and and what the the idea was when we were putting the sexual history polygraph preparation piece together for them. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the. I guess to back up a little bit, when a client of ours goes in to take uh, a polygraph, or I guess when they're at that stage in treatment, we've we've crafted a packet that we give to them beforehand, and uh, you know, in this packet, we actually have some wording in there about we don't violate their Fifth Amendment right, all those types of things, and there's some pretty clear cut instructions through consultation with Ed and another uh, polygrapher named Tana Stone that uh, gave us some ideas about what would increase the chances of our clients passing the polygraph, uh, you know, provided they tell the truth, what can we do to to eliminate any of the ambiguity or any of the, the gray area that leads to failures. And so we, we, this packet has information on how to pass as far as like getting plenty of rest, giving yourself time uh, to get there, not taking any weird medications that you don't normally take. Uh, those types of things. And then also uh, a series of questions that basically by the time they're done filling out the the questionnaire, they've pretty well detailed their entire sexual history. And so every sexual contact they've, they've ever had. And then a little more attention to detail specific to, you know, whoever they, they happen to victimize as far as a little more specific with what they did, did with uh, that person or, or people. And, a big key component to it is it, at no time do we ask them any identifying information. They don't have to say their name. And in fact, and this is what happened with the, the judge, uh, that they, they were worried that even the judge was, I guess, initially worried that even though we don't ask them to say names of people they've had sexual contact with, the other information like uh, age of victim or, or things like that could come out that would then um, zero in on the person without saying their name. But the, the way that we have our packet worded and created is that they're, they're giving much more, I guess, uh, vague demographics type uh, descriptors of, of their victims. And so I don't have the sexual history packet in front of me, but essentially we like, we allow them. I to do. Ad- okay. Awesome. <laughs> do you want to detail the, the different categories? Well, yeah. And so this is, so a, a big reason why is so, uh, as therapists, the position that we're in, if, I mean, and clients need to know this too. So part of the therapeutic relationship relies on confidentiality and what you're going to be talking to me about, I'm going to keep confidential, but there's limitations to that. So obviously if a client's telling me that he's going to kill himself or, or hurt, you know, imminently going to hurt somebody else or kill another person. Um, and I believe him and he's not willing to accept any intervention from me, then I need to notify somebody outside of that session that allows me to, I have a duty to warn at that point. Um, so, I mean, technically like if that, if we were sitting in here and Ed was my client and he said, you know, uh, I'm going to go rob the golden West credit union. 
well, technically, I couldn't say anything to anybody about that because he's just saying, I don't know if he's going to rob it with a note. I don't know if he's going to, you know, fake, have a fake gun. He's not saying he's going to hurt anybody. There's nothing to disclose at that point, right? Um, if he says, I'm going to go Golden West and shoot Jim in the face. <laughs> okay. Well, now I know, you know. I'm <laughs> no, yeah, that's hilarious. That. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Poor Jim. So, uh so then I'm gonna. So then, then I, then I, I do have to because now he's identified somebody, and then there's an imminent threat against somebody's life. So that that's an obvious one. The other ones are when when they're disclosing a crime for which there there's um, abuse uh, against maybe what we call a protected class. So this would be, um, you know, against a child, for example, if they've detailed any type of abuse, including sexual abuse, regardless of how long ago it was. Um, if they tell that information to me and they give me enough identifying information, then I'm required by law to do this. Now, this gets tricky, though, because if a client tells me, hey, I murdered somebody 10 years ago and uh, buried their body in a lake and I'm not going to tell you about it. I mean, do I really have enough information at that point to report this to anybody? They haven't given me a name. They haven't given me um, you know, where this happened. They didn't even tell me when it was. They didn't tell me which lake it was. I don't have any information to tell anybody about anything. How can I break their confidentiality to that point? Right? I'd be more curious of how they buried it in a lake. That'd be impressive. Oh yeah, <laughs> Dram- <laughs> buried. Yeah, they. That they- is that is a tricky one though, because I had maybe about a year ago a guy that was about done with therapy, so long since past his sexual history polygraph, and mm-hmm. wanted to also seek out treatment on a separate sort of deal, like at a private provider kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And so he was talking about some of his past stuff, and and he told her like anything he would have put on a sexual history and she kind of made i shouldn't say made a fuss about it but she's like oh i gotta i gotta just so you know i have to report that he was talking about an offense against a minor Mm -hmm. and so he came into our session kind of freaking out he's like i didn't tell her anything about it i just said that it even happened i didn't even say an age or anything i was like she's probably not overly used to working with that it might have caught her off guard so she's just kind of covering her butt i was like Mm -hmm. but that's not going to go anywhere don't worry well yeah so 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 again as a, as a therapist, I mean, part of my job is I, I never want to violate your confidentiality. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my number one duty is to maintain that. And so if I called up a police station and said, hey, Ed told me yeah. 10 years ago he murdered somebody, or not even then. If you just told me a while ago he uh, buried a body in a lake with <laughs> scuba <laughs> gear. And, Which is know, impressive. Um, <laughs> point, the police are going to, you know, the police are going to... Um, the police. I mean, I don't even know if I could use his name when I'm disclosing mm. that. Like my client said this, and so a lot of times, I think clinicians get scared into this idea. Like I've got to report it to yeah. cover my butt, and that's not really true. So, so on this, it, if if a client were to give us identifying information of a previous victim, and specifically a way to maybe get in contact with that person or something like that, if you give me, I think if you give me at least a first and last name then I'm going to be required to report that. So we don't even allow them to get close to that. We don't allow them to get close to any of those things. And we also don't detail because it can get, I mean, so if I have, if I have a, on previous polygraphs, I've seen like, you know, who, what relative is this? Well, sister. Well, if I only have one sister, yeah, right. okay, now we know who it is. So how we specify this is when the client's completing this, um, first of all, we, on the name or identifier, what we tell them is, don't use a name. Don't use an actual name. Um, we've already pre-labeled them as A1, A2, A3, and this is for sexual contact with anybody younger than them. And we say, you can leave it like that, or 
you can use initials or you can use a fake name. Okay, we mm-hmm. don't need this. Now, with the identified victim in their case, they can speak freely about it because that's already on the record. There's nothing necessarily to hide there, right? When we do ask, now the relationship is important um, and it's important for a couple of reasons, specifically with regards to risk assessment, but we don't need to know the specific relationship. So what we do need to know is, are they related? In other words, is there a blood relation there? Are they unrelated, meaning that the client knew this person and they had a relationship, but but they weren't blood related? Or were they a stranger? And that means that they had sexual contact with this person in less than 24 hours. We ask if, if the person was a male or a female. And when it comes to ages, like Judge Newfer was saying, you can't get too specific because then you start to narrow this down. If I start to narrow it down, I knew it was then. And I say my age at the time and their age at the time, simple little bit of math. And if there's an accusation out there, okay, now I've got it, right? And I can incriminate the client. So their age at the time, we put age ranges, like stages of, of, of development. So we put infant, prepubescent, adolescent, and adult. And, I, and I, I give the client age ranges, but I don't actually tell them what the ages of those are. They get to kind of define that for themselves. For the client, my only concern is were they a juvenile or were they an adult? Were they under the age of 18 or were they over the age of 18? And then even number of times, we don't even really have them specify that beyond if it happened one time, rarely, occasionally, or frequently. And all these are just check boxes. So the client technically doesn't write a name and then they just check relationship, male, female, all those things. And there's nothing in that thread that would then incriminate them, but that gives enough information so then when they come into you that they're going to be able to pass their examination. So the purpose behind that then is we take that information and we can use it for treatment planning. But based on that, I mean, how does that then help you help the client have a have a higher success rate of passing that test? Right. Well, one, I mean, filling out a sexual history uh, paperwork ahead of time should always be required mm-hmm. for these things, right? Like whether the examiner does or, or, or you guys do it. Because um, if, if someone comes in, and I've had this before, and often you're supposed to send them away, right? If someone comes in, they haven't done any pre-work, send them away a lot of times. So, you know, you talk to guys, you guys have people coming in there, what, in their 70s sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you ask someone on the spot, um, how many people have you had sexual contact with? Are they all going to know exactly how many? Mm-hmm. If you ask them, as an adult, so since you've been 18, have you had sexual contact with any minors? Now, if someone hasn't had a little time to think about this, you know, they might freak out like, well, I know I, I went to a lot of parties when I was 18 or 19. Were some of the yeah, girls start those, critiquing every situation. Were some of those girls at those parties, they might have been 17. Did I make out with any of them? Um, so on the spot, they might really freak out like I might have done these things. What's going on? Whereas if they've worked with their therapist for a while had time to think about these. Um, a really important thing I think also is, is clarifying exactly what you guys mean. Like what is sexual contact or what would this count as that? They have a chance to get a lot of those concerns out of the way, clarify things, have some time to really think about these things. So by the time they get to me, they're much more confident and comfortable. They might not always be a hundred percent. You know, they might still have some worries like, you know, I don't know, man, there, there could have been, there might've been someone else that might've been 17 or 16 when I was younger that I might have had some sexual contact I with. There might have been 17 or 16 others. <laughs> so yeah. so, yeah. so with, with a lot of these guys, I try to clarify because I think a lot of people overthink when they come Well, in. yeah, and when I'm prepping my guys, so we go through that whole assignment, and then I usually tell them 
here's the questions you're probably going to hear or, or an idea so they know the so it's of, not some yeah them. they're not getting broadside i usually will pull up a previous polygraph that someone just did and i'm like here's the last questions the guy had before you right this is probably what you're and, gonna hear and you have an idea right yeah. obviously it's not always the same it's going to be case by case for some but um if someone's had time to think about that there's less stress and i try to stress with the guys that are overthinking you know i think there's a big difference if someone asks me a question and I know I'm not telling you something, I'm clearly lying. Versus if you ask me a question and I'm sitting there like, oh, I can't think of any other thing like that right now. You're not, you know, saying no, right? that's not lying. Mm-hmm. And maybe a month down the road, I'm like, oh, oh man, when I was 18, I, I think I remember making out with this 16-year-old at this party. If you didn't think about that back then, you're not intentionally lying. And that's yeah. what you guys really care about, right? You guys care if these guys are actually trying to be as open as they can with you so you know what this looks like to go forward, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the importance of some of that comes in having time to prep. Do you get guys that, I mean, you mentioned talking to to the judge. Do you get people outside of this that get angry that, you know, why don't you want more information about their other victims? They need some some yes. way to feel better for, for these things. You, yes. should, you should figure that out. Well, so it's a misapplication of what, or I guess a misrepresentation of what we're attempting to do. Purpose. So, uh, um, what I would say is those people, if they're if they're working with sex offenders, then they probably ought to not be working with people who've committed a sexual offense. Because, so that's my client, and and well, I, yo, uh, what, what is it they're going for? People that make that complaint that we're not doing more digging, like what what is their point of view? Well, in the past, people have said that they want, you know, they want restitution for these victims. They want if if maybe those victims need to be in therapy and all the rest of it. Now look, I don't disagree with that. I don't I don't think that um I don't think that the, that unsolved cases should, you know, I mean, I don't think those people who have been sexually victimized by any of our clients deserve to live a life um of of trauma uh if, if that's the case. But Here's the thing. This is the line of work that I chose, and these are my clients. Those are not my clients. It's not that I don't have care and consideration and compassion for them. A, I don't know who they are. And B, my objective is I'm trying to work with the guy sitting in front of me to help him rehabilitate the way he thinks about things and how he manages his own behavior such that he doesn't do any more harm to anybody else in the future mm-hmm. and he's and he's successful in his own life and a byproduct of that is he's not creating new victims so i i mean i can't mix my goals here i can't say well i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna start that that would be like a, a prosecutor or a defense attorney trying to you know uh, uh discover all the things that their client has already done and then make sure that those other people get rid no you don't yeah. do that you you focus on the pending case that you're working on um, so it's not, again, I, I just don't have a, I can't focus on them because this is the, this is the, what I've chosen to do. And so those, so yes, they do get upset with that, but that's not the purpose of what we're doing. Cause the purpose is and the example that I use is a client that I worked with and he came in on a solicitation of a minor charge. And for those who don't know, that's like a, a, to catch a predator thing. So he had contacted what he believed to be a 13 year old girl and arranged, you know, a sexual encounter with her at a park. He wasn't really ever talking to a 13-year-old girl. This was a sting operation. This was a, a, a person from the Internet Crimes Against Children. And then when he got to the park, he was arrested. So, I mean, if we take a look at that objectively, what happened? He actually never touched anybody. He actually never talked to a 13-year-old girl, and he was arrested before anything happened. So you could say in the, in the scheme of things, 
very little harm was done by that guy. However, when he prepared for his sexual history polygraph, he had 17 undetected victims that were hands-on that he had disclosed. Now, the reason why that's important is because his treatment uh, plan looked very different once I discovered those other victims. Because now I knew, okay, we're dealing with a completely different type of person here who needs another level or another layer of treatment to uh, to address some things that previously would not have been detected. And that's why it's for treatment planning purposes. And, And same the other direction. If if the client's uh, sexual behaviors are rather normative his entire life, and then there was one key area of his life, maybe a six-month period, in which he went off the rails and committed his offense, that's an important topic of discussion in therapy to understand what happened in those six months that took you off track that led to your offense. How can we problem-solve around that? How can we identify the lifestyle factors that then contributed to your high-risk situations and high-risk thinking and high-risk behaviors that added to your offense, and and let's control for that. That That's really important information that I need to do the work that I need to do, and that's why we're doing it. So that's All right. Yeah. The, the important part of the, like the important part of the sexual history, where it goes, and, and the end goal is to not have new victims, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think some guys coming to me, I've even talked to a guy that told me that he heard... I think it was when he was in jail, which you don't always get the best information in jail or prison. He heard the recidivism rate for sex offenders was like in the 90s of the percentile. It's like, where'd you get that information? Well, my friend's wife. I'm like, well, <laughs> she knows. Fine, I believe it. <laughs> well, yeah, so, I, I don't like uh, kind of based what you were talking about either. Is just that idea of if someone's coming into treatment under the umbrella of let's address this stuff. You're not going to incriminate yourself. Let's work on it. And then he tells me, and then I go back. I have to, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm like, I feel like that would get torn up in court. Like he admitted to that in treatment where you tell him it's not going to be held against him. And then now you're trying to investigate this and hold it against him. Like, well, and it would, cause there's no way he would have told me that otherwise. Right. And it would get torn up in yeah. court, except because alpha were such badasses that we wrote our sexual history polygraph such that chief justice Newfer said, Yep, this is going to work. And now that our our polygraph policy with regards to how we do this is now basically going to be put as as a federal guideline for all sex offender providers to be doing this. I mean, I don't know when that goes into effect. Is it going to be your actual paperwork that's going into there or just like the basic understanding? We gave it, it to his clerk. We, we gave yeah. it to his clerk and said, uh-huh. do right. what you will. This is non-proprietary. I mean, I think it is proprietary, actually, We did, we, but I don't. I don't care. I mean, if we, we didn't say you couldn't use it. Yeah, right? I didn't. And his clerk clarified at least twice further with me, and they had said, yep, this is what we're going to do. But, because it was – because and honestly, that's how it should go. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be to be completely fair, um, if, if Von Behren's therapist and or probation officers were asking him to, to give identifying information, then to then report it, they're just doing it wrong. I mean, and, and look, I'm not – I'm not trying to be a critic because when you and I were first trained, that is exactly how we were trained. We were. We were told, find that out, get as much information you can, report that to DCFS. Remember? Yeah, I made that call. Right. To DCFS a couple of times. It kind of sucks in hindsight. Right. Complete violation of Fifth Amendment rights. But yeah. but again, what would we know differently? And at the time, it made perfect sense. Like, oh, yeah, these victims, the reason why we're doing this is no more victims. And, and you know, kind of. I mean... You know, and and so damn getting the treatment is is really necessary. And again, that's a that's positive sentiment. That's a compassionate approach. 
But that's not what I would say is if that's your approach, don't work with sex offenders. Right. You, you just shouldn't be working with them. That's that's not what the objective is. And I know I mentioned that that guy had heard of the high recidivism rate, but just to clarify from the research you had, what was the recidivism rate for sexual offenders with a new sexual offense? So nationwide, it's it's around twelve percent, and that includes internet facilitated crimes, which are which are uniquely high because it's it's just again non hands on. It's just easy to do that. So twelve percent, um, which which again, then you could say eighty eight percent effective in doing what what we're hoping to accomplish. Now in Utah, the the most recent study, it was less than one percent of the uh, almost a thousand offenders that were released into the community committed a new sexual offense um and a small percentage about about 10 percent committed a new crime a new general crime non-sexual related but then it was about 48 percent committed violations Mm -hmm. of their parole or probation now i suppose you could make the argument that had those violations not been not been carried through that you may have a higher rate of of sexual recidivism and and non-sexual recidivism in terms of the actual crimes because if they noticed that they were violating and then arrested them they may cut it off but who knows you know we're just speculating there but that's the actual statistics which are incredibly low i mean if you look at recidivism rates with regards to like relapse rates with regards like drug offenders it's it's almost polar opposite. Just flip that around, and then you got the numbers for people coming back in as right. a result of so those. The things. treatment is beneficial. Doing these things, that, especially Utah, right? You mentioned the low sexual reoffense. It's it's obviously something's going right. Yeah, I think done, it's a mixture. I think it's a mixture of the amount of time of incarceration. There, I mean, a lot of people will make a case that sex offenders are overly convicted in the court of public sentiments. I doubt you could ever argue against that and say nope, they need to be punished less. I don't know. There's plenty of people who would support that. But I would say, is that just strict warehousing or are they receiving rehabilitative treatment in the in the meantime with follow-up continued care in the community? When you see those things, you have an incredibly low recidivism rate for sure. I would say it's very effective. So I, I'm curious, though, like about this idea that um, when they say – so polygraphs are not admissible in court. So I shouldn't have to do this. And you're, you're – you know, it's inaccurate. It's totally inaccurate. All this other stuff. Because when I was thinking about that, I think about other stuff that is admissible, like eyewitness testimony, right? Which is, if you look at the least accurate things, see some TV. Generally, shows. garbage. Well, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so this is so this is one of the things that I um, had. You watched that? Well, I don't know if you guys watch Make It a Murderer. Oh yeah, yeah. So they had went over. I looked in. I was just reading some stuff about that, and it was saying that. Is this a spoiler alert? No, 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 no. It was saying <laughs> there's nothing. Okay. He dies in the end. Oh, <laughs> thanks, guys. Does he? I haven't, I haven't, <laughs> no, no. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's good to watch though. But ever since DNA rolled around, basically, it was kind of saying that 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 revolutionized forensic science, obviously. Um, because of the the level of accuracy that's involved in DNA, right? And um, so that it, it the amount so the Innocence Project, what they were saying was um, they had put a thing out there because that's who was represented. I think his name was Brendan Dassey. Um, he was the, the kid that was involved in that, and they were saying 358 people who have been convicted and sentenced since 1989 have been exonerated through DNA evidence. Of the of the 71 percent were convicted through of those 358. 71% of them had been convicted through eyewitness misidentification and had served an adger- average of 14 years in prison before exoneration. 
of those false identifications, 41% involved cross-racial misidentifications. In other words, 221 of the 358 people were African-American. So um, sounds a little racist. And then 28% of those cases involved false confessions. So both of those things, interrogations and eyewitness testimony, 100% uh, you know, admissible in oh, court. Yeah. And, I mean, horrible accuracy based on those numbers. But if I do a specific issue polygraph, that's, that's all those things that I just said, based on behavior, delimited to time, time delimited, and then... Um, and it's a just a simple yes or no. I mean, accuracy-wise, what percentile are we talking so about? So you're going single issue now, so the, you have a higher accuracy if you're going single issue. So if you look at the American Polygraph Association's uh, meta-analysis that they did going over just tons of studies on different things, mm-hmm. uh, so you have the accuracy about about 90% for a single issue test. And it's going to depend on a couple things too. So... If, you know, I was looking at some things because you hear things crazy on both sides, right? Like I was saying, like you hear the recidivism rate for sex offenders is the 90 percentile, right? And if you look on like, if you go to school on YouTube, you hear crazy things. I saw a polygraph examiner say it's 99% accurate, which is crazy, right, for, for polygraphs. But around uh, like a, a Utah format, so a specific format with a certain scoring, like a ESS scoring, um, so specific formats with specific scoring, you got around 90% for a single issue test is, is where the studies show it to be. Um, other test formats, so some screening test formats that we do with a lot of uh, post-conviction sex offender testing, depending on the format, you might get the the base, the average being around 86, 87%. So I'll never say it's perfect, mm-hmm. right? But do are they 70% wrong? That's way you better know? than what I'm seeing here. Like if you ask Stephen Avery, like okay, so Teresa Halbach was the chick that he, he, that he supposedly murdered. If you had asked him a specific issue question, right? And so this was supposed to be, I mean, whatever day, what would it sound like? And then you know, if you're asking him, did you kill Teresa Halbach? I mean, would it just be that, or would it be on a certain date, or well, you know, it depends on what the situation was. You know, was she shot, stabbed? Uh, I mean, specific. That's all. Did, did you shoot this person? Did you stab this person? You know, well, well I didn't kill her. The the bullet killed her. You know, I, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, so okay. So being specific, but yeah, they did say she that that uh, he shot her. Yes, right. So so like we said before, being specific on on the behavior, being very clear about what you're talking about, defining in his garage. things. Shot her in his garage. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. I'm remembering now. <laughs> then so they burned her. Someone that's in the, that does more of those testing, they're gonna have specific questions. They're gonna be more accurate, right? Yeah. So the the, <clears throat> the number is ninety percent though. Around ninety percent. Again, depend. It's going to tell your test format. I believe Utah test format, and because there's some guys out here at the University of Utah that do some studies and things. And so, is there anywhere where that's because le- that sounds like that sounds like why would you not have that in court if it's ninety percent right, accurate? Right. And it's not a hundred, you know. And obviously, you don't want to convict well, someone. Well, what is though? Better like, right. but, fifteen. But so New Mexico, from my understanding, is it's it's legal to use in courts for anything, just like anything else. Other places, always. I believe so. I mean, I'd have to go back and look at, but that's that's what I've been told and looked at in the past. So New Mexico, it's it's more used as anything else can be, right? If you have your eyewitness, if you have your, well, like, know, do they use handwriting analysis? We can be still? called into court, and I can tell you right now, my clinical judgment is definitely not 100%. Right. No one's is. And for lying. Yeah. So they've done studies. So the, the studies that I read on, and I may have mentioned this last time, right? The studies I read on the accuracy of your average person, and some of the studies may have had police officers on how accurate they were at telling if someone was telling a lie, 
was around 50%. You know, I think one study I saw might have said 55%. So that's more the flip of a coin. So yeah. if I'm a therapist or a PO and I know that I'm about 50% accurate and I can have a test that's, you know, 85 to 90% accurate to, to help me make difficult decisions, you know, what do I want to do for that? Mm-hmm. So this kind of goes back to what I was asking you before we started the podcast. Um, how much variability is there? So, I mean, I, I, it, it probably falls in the category of myth, but <clears throat> there's uh, you hear clients kind of talking, rumor mill gets circulating, and they'll, they'll talk about how uh, some examiners are uh, more likely to yield a passing score than others, and which, which is kind of puzzling. And that's something that I was telling you my, my wife was kind of wanted me to ask you specifically. Mm-hmm. So, like, how much is it the machine – and how much is it the examiner in terms of your final conclusion? So it's moving more and more towards computer scoring, right? So I just read a recent um, magazine. So every couple months, the American Polygraph Association puts out a magazine on maybe some more current information or things they're looking at. And Sounds like a real page turner. Uh, it's exciting. <laughs> but, I mean, something I was pointing out is how things are trying to turn more towards our computer scoring. So there's the objective scoring system. I believe three is the current objective scoring system where they actually use the computer to do more of the scoring. And that's going to be more objective, I guess, than a person in general. It's going to be able to measure things more accurately than I can just with my eye. Like, ah, that looks a little bit smaller, but, you know, it's going to have more accuracy. So right now, I mean... I still run things through the through the scoring system, the computer scoring system. There's some things that it just scores, period. Of course, it's not perfect yet, right? So I still have to do my scoring, and, and the end result is my opinion, right? So the computer helps, but it's still my opinion, but it's mm-hmm. moving more towards, more towards that. But if you're using the same uh, test, so test formats will make a little difference, right? Some might be a little more accurate. Um, and then the scoring system you use, so... Uh, there's a couple of different scoring systems. Most people have gone to this ESS uh, empirical scoring system, uh, which is a little simpler for examiners to use. Uh, Federal has a different scoring system that's much more complicated. So using the empirical scoring system, that really raises that inner rater reliability. So, and, I, and sometimes, and on my waiver I have, I can send this to another examiner for a quality review, right? So if I ever want a second opinion, and I think it's a great thing for examiners to do, send the chart, you know, so they just have the chart data, right? So they score out chart data without knowing who this person was. And, you know, the majority of the time, they're going to have the exact, well, not the exact same score, but the same opinion. So mm-hmm. if someone fails, they might score overall, let's say they scored a negative nine by me. Someone else might score a negative eight or, or something. Both of them are fails, right? So in a really rate of reliability with those types of scoring, things are much, much higher. And having things turn more and more towards the computer, I'm excited about because, you know, the more I can put on the computer that's more accurate, that they can do things even better than me, that has better measurements, um, the better I say. You know, it's more scientific if you can run a, the same test format. It's not just, well, Johnny scored it like this, but I feel like this looks better. I feel like, yeah. Right, and and some of the new schools, so Peak um, is a polygraph school in Florida, and that's where they've gone more with everything they're doing. So even if you go to, we go to our, our conferences, and if they're talking, they're like, if you ask me a question, I'm not going to tell you, my personal opinion from my experience or things that I've been doing, I'm going to tell you, this is what the research shows right now, which I think is the right way to go for these things. Right. And, and where it's changed over all the years, I, there was something on YouTube. I saw with a guy from the seventies saying how nothing's changed since the twenties. And you know, it has it changes all the time, whether it's 
through studies and saying you can use these specific test formats that are this accurate versus back before the Employee Polygraph Protection Act passed, you didn't have those guidelines that you had to go by. So guidelines have changed, formats uh, well, why using do they, the computer. People say that a lot. They say the 20s. So in the 20s, because that's the Fry case, right? it's a pretty famous case, which is the reason why polygraphs are, are not are not admissible. And if, if, if I'm not, I mean, you can kind of correct me on this, but uh, th- this guy Fry, um, basically this was in 1920. He had, um, he had, uh, he shot and killed a, a doctor, right? And then he was um, he murdered in his office. And then another physician was in the office and witnessed the shooting and Fry ran out of the office with the eyewitness running after him, and then he turned around and shot, c- took a couple shots at Homeboy, and then but since the witness didn't know who this Fry guy was, he fled and got away with it. And then uh, almost a year later, it was like seven or eight months later, he got arrested for something else like robbery, and then he confessed to the robbery and then also to the murder of of that doctor. But then there was two tests performed. There was a uh, a polygraph. And then there was what was called a systolic blood pressure, intermittent systolic blood pressure test. I, I think was that was there another test done as well? Because that or was, was it only the systolic? that was the one I was aware of at the time. So I believe oh, so they Marston, didn't even they didn't even compare it. So I believe Marston was the polygraph examiner. William time Marston, from, from the little bit that I know about it, and what he did was a, you know, like I say, from from what I was told and had read about, was an intermittent systolic blood pressure time of the test. So he asked a question. Then he pumped up a blood pressure cuff and read their systolic blood pressure, right? And then he pumped it down. Like the shit you get at the at Smith's? Right, right. <laughs> the grocery <laughs> store, yeah. where it just feels like it's going way too hard. He to the jail. Starts to scare you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just let's go to Smith's. Let's pump it up <laughs> to lose after my each question. <laughs> so, so it's ask, an equate polygraph. But so that's, that's what it is. Ask a question, pump it up, check, pump it down. Ask another question, pump it up, check, pump it down. So... They could wear some Air race. Jordans, too, so just even, pump it up. So, <laughs> so if, if that's what was done, and I haven't gone into all the exact details for everything, but from my understanding, if that's what was done, really, that's not even a polygraph, right? Polygraph is multiple cho- multiple graphs. You're looking at multiple readings versus just one reading that's changing. So, And again, there could be some differences. I don't have all the details, but, 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 that's, but Marston, that, was, that was my understanding. William Marston wrote the book called The Lie Detector Test, and that was his version of of the lie detector test was the systolic blood pressure, which is just, I'm right. taking your blood pressure, bro. Right. Like, that's it. So, so, well, no wonder the courts rightly so threw that nonsense out and said it was inadmissible. But how did that get caught up as a polygraph? Because clearly that's not a polygraph. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, Are they just saying was, it's, I think, but that's, that's essentially where they're inadmissible, correct? That's, that's my understanding where it started him trying to get into a federal court. And, and then getting thrown out and then, you know, from going through school. And again, I haven't gone back and done mm-hmm. all the research on it. But, yeah, they, they throw back. They, okay, go back to the Fry case. And, and we're not going to throw it out. So that was an initial thing. But but to me, is it like, okay, so you would think over time, you would think over time a lawyer would come about and say, well, let's, let's write this wrong because clearly that's bullshit. Like that shouldn't be the precedence for a polygraph evidence. But, but – I don't know if I think like a lawyer too. The other piece about that is, so if I'm the defense attorney and my and my client passes the polygraph, clearly I want that to come into evidence, but the prosecutor won't. On the other side, if I'm the prosecuting attorney and the and the defendant fails that, 
then I want that to come into evidence, and the defense defense attorney won't. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's never going to become admissible in court. Right, because for, why would anybody ever do that? Except for more rare cases when they do agree ahead of time. I mean, or I, if you're in New Mexico. <laughs> I mean, I can think of one Hashtag exam. Hashtag New Mexico, son. I can think of one exam I did for for a lawyer, and the judge had agreed that. So this was with a minor. And they agreed that, hey, if this kid did not actually commit this crime, then going through sex treatment might be uh, have a more negative impact on him than if he doesn't, if he, you know, if he didn't go through, right? Right. So they'd agree with the lawyer that, hey, if he passes this polygraph test over the crime of conviction, so an instant offense test, then he won't have to go through treatment. So that was something where, in a way, that, that's being used in court, right? They had agreed on this for this kid for, for his particular situation with the lawyer. But the prosecutor and the defense attorney agreed to that. So I, just with the lawyer. I, so I worked with the lawyer specifically, and okay. that was the agreement that she said that this, they came up with. So I imagine in both cases that was agreed upon, but that was what she had said was agreed upon ahead of time for this. So you're working for a lawyer, and some of those lawyers, attorney, client privileges, I imagine some. Um, if it's agreed upon by them, I'm not sure where some of those things change. I do less work for lawyers than someone like Tana Stone, or but some it's of not universally ones. inadmissible then. Correct. That's, okay. that's, that's my understanding. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that just is, I, I mean, I think that that would, that's just, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's useful to validate a client's anxiety and concerns about the polygraph. And I wouldn't get into a damn argument with them. I, I think that's foolish. I don't think that's the right way, way to go. But I think for anybody listening to this and like, I'm sure there's going to be comments from somebody about pseudoscience. Right. Hasn't the, changed since the 20s. That's the Twilight Zone. And I think, and I think it was it was hokey before back in the day. You hear things about you know back in before the Employee Polygraph Protection Act passed, when you could do it for any job, right? Seven Eleven, take a polygraph. <laughs> Someone stole something. Everyone at work yeah, take a polygraph. Work somewhere else then. And, uh, that's not. And they told us stories about a van pulling up in front of a job and running twenty or thirty or more polygraphs in a day. <laughs> What and, you know? And wow. of course, do you like our nachos? <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, those were garbage back then. So to compare that to where they're at now with all the it's regulation, like a food truck, and but rules. for polygraphs, <laughs> it's yeah. polygraph truck. Hey, do you want to get for your lunch girlfriend today? cheating? Uh, I don't Are know. your kids lying? Do what happened to that fry guy? He didn't go to the electric chair or something, did he? That'd have did been he, ironic. Did he fry? That'd have been, uh, that'd have been good. It's a zinger. <laughs> oh, I got him good. Yeah. Don Fry. <laughs> so, so things have changed since then. You know, yeah. it's going the right direction. You know, requ- you know, higher education requires they're requiring at least a bachelor's degree for the American Polygraph Association versus you know just the polygraph school. So it's a combination. So they're changing things. Yeah, back in the day, the right you, just had, you had to have looked at a junior high. <laughs> like, just you had to have just had evidence that you looked at the building. Do you think you, junior highs are real? Have, <laughs> you've had to have told a lie. To do. <laughs> have you ever lied? Yeah. No. And it shocks them. I love that. <laughs> it electrocutes them. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. But I think Alpha, because I, I, I do most of my work with you guys, uh, I think you guys do it the right way. Guys come in, they're so scared. Like, what if I fail? And I'm like, well, if you're doing things the right way, I mean, even if someone has failed, I mean, they work with their therapist, clarify things, what what else has happened. I mean, there's a lot of cases that I have where, you know, a guy drank some beer and he hadn't told his therapist because he was embarrassed or a guy that had been around some minors for the holidays because he was around family. So he had unauthorized contact. He hadn't told his therapist about, but he was already there. Some, some family members showed up. They wanted to be around him. So, you know, things come up. Usually it's 
not as significant, they come back and pass another one. So they're not immediately thrown in jail, and that should never really be a threat. You know, appeals shouldn't come to someone and say, you fail this, you're immediately going to prison. That's, and that's not the purpose, right? It is crazy. I think it's like, if I was on that end of the treatment, like if I was the client, I would, I'd have that feeling too. It's crazy how many guys, after they've failed a polygraph, will come in and tell me that's the first thing. Like, well, I've just heard if you fail... You're going to go back. And I was like, purposely lied. But yeah, so I was like, I get that. Yeah. So I think sometimes they do have to kind of go through that and realize, like, see somebody else in group or they themselves realize, okay, nothing happened. They right, just told right. me to work on right. it. Obviously, it kind of brings their defense down a little. Right. Obviously, you guys work on those things and clarify. But you guys use it the right way. Like, this is to help make sure we know what's going on. We've cleared things up. If there's anything significant, we're aware of it as opposed to just immediately threatening. And I mean, and I don't think that helps. If, if appeal threatens someone, if I'm immediately going to go in, someone's like, "You're you're dying if you mm-hmm. fail this." Then shoot. <laughs> you're dying. <laughs> shoot you. And you're yeah. just, <laughs> he's just sitting outside. <laughs> he just has the blind pulled down. He's just looking in. He's like, <laughs> oh, so I mean, be awesome. they're already stressful going in. Why add more stress? Yeah. I mean, there's not going to. Yeah, I mean, is it going to make someone? It's better fail when they should pass. I don't think it's so. Better but when they come back help. from a group and they're like, "I failed, bro," and I'm like, "Why'd you lie? You lying liar." <laughs> <laughs> That <laughs> we go on from there. No. Yeah, I think that's one of the best people they can hear that from is their PO. Like, hey, if you fail, we'll work with you. Like, well, we're going to move uh, forward. And you got to put pressure on them sometimes. I've had guys, yeah. one guy, he'd failed several. I think he'd mm-hmm. failed some with Tana, failed maybe two with me. And then he came in the last time. He's like, they told me if I fail, this is getting too serious. Treatment says I'm not complying. Yeah. And then he told me every Some pressure. And there was a, a lot. Yeah. There was a lot mm-hmm. with animals and with people and with children. Mm-hmm. Um but the pressure, I think, in his particular case helped because he actually opened up and disclosed. Well, yeah, if you get to that, that point, you get, well, I think it's I think it's okay to let them know That's they're kind of forcing it to that point mm-hmm. sometimes, right. but right out of the gate, no. Well, I right. I guess the message there wrapping up here is, I mean, even I just saw um, one that you did, and the client, uh, like, so there was just I mean I won't I won't get specific, but the the client had failed the initial one and hadn't disclosed much of anything, right? And followed up, it was a bunch of, like, uh, in group, it was like, uh, this horse shit, you know, that that thing's bullshit. And stirred up everybody. And all the clients were like, yeah, this is this is horrible. This is an injustice. And then he goes... <laughs> <laughs> then he goes back and discloses like thirty things yeah. and passes. I'm like, whoa, that's amazing! But I bet he didn't say that in group. Well, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. He's he was violated, yeah. and uh, and it was it was a problem for him because the things that he disclosed were violations, and um, and then he had it, and he had not talked to his therapist about those, which actually would have saved him and helped him. Oh. In the process, and so I think that that sends a shitty message to clients. If you're a, if you're a client listening to this, I would so take everything those those other guys say with a grain of salt, um, because I mean I, I, I've seen that so many times where all they're like, man, that thing is bullshit. And then they're like, they disclose something to their therapist, and then they go back and pass. I'm like, wow, that's weird. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's so weird that well, you and that, the group never hears the follow up. Right? They never yeah. say. Man. And they hear the guys that are frustrated from failing. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Um, but then as also therapists listening to this and hopefully it was interesting for people who didn't know much about it, but therapists listening to this know the function of that tool and, um, it's not designed for catching a client in a lie or, you know, if you, if you think they're being dishonest and sent, I, I think that that's pointless. Why are you doing that? That's, that's not the, the point of why we're trying to do a polygraph, um, and, uh, use it appropriately 
because I don't think it does anybody any good, you know, namely the polygraphers, to use the tool that way. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure you guys have ethics saying I probably shouldn't do this type of polygraph. Well, then also adding to that, too, like in my experience coming up on five years now, we've never had a case where someone passed and then we scrutinize that. We're like, oh, I don't know that he really passed, though. I don't think this is true. We just, okay, he passed. Awesome. Good job. We don't, like, scrutinize it. I've told a client, I'm like, I've told him, I don't want to send you in, dude. I don't want to send you into this polygraph. And he's like, no, I'm ready. I'm like, (laughs) calm down. I don't think you are. So let's sit on it for a month. And he was pissed. And then... I was like, I still don't think this is going to go well. And then he went in and passed. And yeah, I was like, it happens. Good for you, brother. Like, yeah. I was like, I was wrong. I'll be the first to admit. I that get I ones wrong. like that. I'm sorry. I, I misjudged it, and I, I was just trying to be as honest as I could with you. So that's that's about as good as you're going to get. Ed, anything you want to say? Winding us up? Any contact information? I don't know if we managed that in the outset of this podcast. It's your pager yeah. number. <laughs> please is it hello upside down <laughs> hello upside down hello kitty hello 911 what what was i love you upside down would you have to do it's like are a, you talking about like a sexual Mace position had, no he's had a pager a pager dude i had one i for sure no, had one hell yeah, that's like so. the most worthless thing ever someone wants to contact me but i can't call them back right now well, well yeah pay phone. so at but some there, point but there were yeah. pay phones yeah that's back when pay phones existed <laughs> yeah I'm already paying for my pager. I can't afford a pay phone. You get a pay. You, yeah, it's you like get a seventy-five cents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, how do people get in contact with you? So, I talk to your therapist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you if you That's need to get hold of PrimePolygraph at gmail dot com. Uh, there's also polygraph polygrapher information on. Uh, if you Google the Utah Polygraph Association, that shows polygraph examiners in Utah. It shows who's post-conviction sex offender testing uh, qualified as well on there. Who heads that up right now? So the president, I believe, currently of the Utah Polygraph Association is uh, John Pickup. When are you going to be the president? Out in though? Utah County. And I'm, I'm not. Edward Cook I'm, for president. Edward I'll Cook. campaign for you, you so loser. I'm part Utah's of the, best lie detector. So I'm part of the board. Son. I'm part of the board of the, the Department of Occupational Professional Licensing. So as a member of that board, I can't become president of the United States or as part of the you know, Utah Polygraph Association. You, you guys do? just break boards. So, yeah. <laughs> you just sit <laughs> around bored all day. Just <laughs> 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 bored. <laughs> we don't have anything to do, man. But, you know, I, I'd say, yeah, just make sure that you're talking to your therapist. Guys come in freaking out about, about things. And, uh, you know, initially, I guess it's good for guys to know that when you come in, it's not immediately jumping onto a polygraph, being electrocuted or something. <laughs> There's like an hour, an hour interview before we get into anything where we answer questions, we clarify things. You know, we're not out to get you, which I think some guys I worry about. And if you have questions, I think it's a great idea to ask them when you're in there. I mean, don't be scared to clarify, ask questions. That's what I'm there for, you know. And, you know, sometimes guys wait until they've failed when they come back like, oh, what about this? Or I didn't say this. Ask those questions so you don't have to come back that second time with an examiner. I was going to say, to your credit, usually when I have a guy go to you, they usually come back and say really good things. Yeah. It wasn't at all like I thought he was really cool. He made it really comfortable. I usually hear good things. So we'll we'll have to have you back a third time, but the third time we'll do a live live broadcast Mm -hmm. of a polygraph of Mace. You can test me on anything. I'm going to be handcuffed while you do it. But but we'll do a live broadcast uh, at post-marriage, right? 
of oh, yeah, yeah. post mortem post mortem <laughs> post marriage that's what it will be <laughs> <laughs> yeah like a lie yeah that'd be any question that listeners that'd be that'd be good to get some comments what are some questions that <laughs> listeners want to ask us as the as the pot as the me and Jeff and Justin. What it's just, the it's just immediately, know? I don't want to incriminate myself. Let <laughs> <laughs> yeah. me go ahead and invoke my Fifth Amendment, right? One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for coming. Cool. In. Thanks, everybody. Right. Thanks, guys. All right. That's a wrap for this episode. We want to thank you for tuning in. We also would like to thank Mr. Cook for coming on the show again. We'll have him back soon to do the live lie detector where Mace gets electrocuted. I don't know what's going to happen there. But yeah, check us out on Facebook, Gorilla Social Work Podcast. Or at whatever website you want to check us out on. I always want to say MySpace. I don't know why. That's really stupid. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be back. Our next episode is going to be 31 where we talk about stress reduction. So that will probably happen within the next four or five weeks, months. We'll be just keep an eye out. All right. See you then. <laughs>